We record on Turrbal and Yagara country in Mianjin, Brisbane. Brisbane Festival recognises the integral role Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples continue to play in the creative and artistic events and celebration spaces and pays respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Beginner's Call takes you backstage with Brisbane Festival and into the hearts, minds and rehearsal rooms of the casts, creators and critics behind Queensland's most anticipated event of the year. Black Social's Queen City is a new theatre work inspired by the missing narratives and rewritten histories in the story of colonisation. Set in the 80s in the fictional place Queen City, the play tells the story of black love and reclamation. To tell us more about this powerful new work is writer, director and proud Cubby Cubby and Wiradjuri artist and producer Alethea Beetson and Jabba Jabba artist Lockie Little. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much for having us. We're excited to be on Turrbal and Jagger and Yagara country with you today. Yes, we are. Queen City is the debut work from uh, new performance collective Black Social. It's been many years in the making, though. How are you all feeling now that we are so close to the show receiving its world premiere and welcoming a first audience? I think we're all feeling content with the mixture of excitement the journey that the work has been on has been right and it's um, all the things have fallen into place which culturally, as our two cultural dramaturgs, Ani Colleen Wall and Uncle Charles Passy, have told us means we're kind of doing everything right. So in amongst the whirlwind that can be a festival, Queen City is kind of really still, even though the play's content isn't necessarily still. So it's actually this really grounding feeling for all of us, um, certainly for me. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Yeah, yeah, you've articulated it perfectly. You're there, do you, sorry, <laughs> in black sound when Lockie yeah, had to totally. interview wow. me, yeah. I'd have a response and then he'd be like, yeah, yeah. okay, <laughs> totally, wow. Cool. <laughs> I loved reading in your bio, which I assume came from yourself, Lockie, that you refer to yourself as Alethea's annoying little brother at times. <laughs> That's which, an old that? bio. That's an that old from? bio. It's in the black social one, I think. Oh, yeah. shit. It's in the public domain, Lockie, so it must be true. It's, it's probably, like you probably, like, he's probably, Probably where progressed into like my older brother lately. Like, <laughs> yeah. I revert to like a younger sister where I'm like, I need to go first. Yeah, he <laughs> so. just ages better than me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember first hearing about Queen City probably back in 2019. Yeah. And I think you were uh, completing a residency at the Museum of Brisbane. Mm-hmm. And I, kn- I know that part of that experience for you was examining the museum social and art history and in particular the issues surrounding absence and whitewashing of Indigenous narratives. How did this experience form the origins or, or plant the seed for Queen City or was Queen City something that was already in the pipeline and, and that just further, uh, mm-hmm. I guess, teased out the exploration for you? It was the timing of two events really so there was the residency that you just spoke of at the museum of brisbane and at the time i'd kind of gone through that exploration of going into their collections seeing how different they were from where i'd come from which was the queensland museum and 
there was still some stolen objects, but not quite the same mass that you see in those bigger state institutions at the space like the Museum of Brisbane. But there certainly was this narrative erasure, and that narrative erasure had to be dealt with in a way where I respected that I'm a visitor and where I come from and my connection to these communities and the surrounds as someone who has country nearby as well. And then alongside that, or when I was sitting there going, what do I do with this in the, the best way possible? I was doing the second adaptation of Annie Alexis Wright's Carpenteria for Brisbane Writers Festival. And if you haven't read Carpenteria, You should. It'll take you a while, but you should. And read it in small chunks if you have to. But it's this beautiful story that I I won't necessarily try and describe, but it is of this place, Carpentaria, but there's been fictionalization within that place. And then I sort of started thinking, well, what happens if I fictionalize where I am in the most respectful way possible? And that's kind of how Queen City was born. And I think Brisbane's more of a muse or Meandrin's more of a muse than necessarily what it's about. And it's then looking at the fabric of colonisation and how that rolls out. And so I decided instead of to just respond to something at the Museum of Brisbane, I would take the methodology of social history museums and do what they've done to us and make make up the white history and keep all the black history true to its form. So Queen City, you know, it was colonised by Sir Nick the Lander and Captain Genocide and all of these things that I think I really was able to look at what um, Alexis Wright did and then use that as well to like inspire a new world where I feel because it's fictionalised, I can live in this space um, in a way that I can tell the story in a way that people can enter into, but also the most respectful way possible. And chat us through the narrative structure of the work. You you know, we talk about Queen City as being a fictional place, but one that obviously has some strong resonances to things that might be familiar to audiences mm-hmm. in, in Mianjin, Brisbane in 2022. Mm-hmm. What's the journey of the show for for the characters within and for the audience? The journey is hard to describe. It's... um. Paula Delaney Nazarski, who's one of the actors, tried to describe it to someone as Marbo meets Hot Tub Time Machine. Is that how she said it? So it's set in the 80s, but we've made sure we've articulated it's set in the nostalgic 80s. We're not Mm. trying to pretend that's what it was. And so it's set in this skating rink that's also like so many places for mob, it's multi-purpose. It's got an arcade game. It's for community meetings. It's 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 people's home or in a space that they've had to come to for whatever reason because of the colony. And so the journey that the characters go on is one of having to save what's theirs. So they have to save always because it's being threatened by them who are on the other side of Restriction Avenue. And so Restriction Avenue divides Queen City in two. And on one side of Restriction Avenue, the them is the government, the police, um, the Performing Arts Centre, uh, <laughs> all of those sort of state institutions and places. And on the other side is, you know, basically, you know, Queen of Hearts, which is, you know, more of a red light district kind of area, the old convict house, which has become the housing commission. And this is where always the skating rink sits. So it very much resonates to the construct of Boundary Street, but also the invisible boundary 
that gets put between us with these systems as well. Mm. And for you, Lockie, you have the great fun of getting to enjoy the work from both sides Mm. as a performer within it, Mm. but also as part of the sound design team. Mm. Being a gift such as we're doing an 80s inspired, (laughs) as you said, it's very very difficult to articulate exactly Mm. kind of what it is, but how have you and your team of collaborators approached that the sound world of this show? Well, yeah, the whole thing's been a yeah a pretty awesome journey. And again, in general, it's um, all so much inspired by the Queen City verse that Alethea has created. And, you know, I'm lucky to have been witnessing the journey of Queen City for such a long time as well. I think Alethea has been tinkering at Queen City since I've met it. So, like, True, to be, yeah, a few uh, months after. Yeah. yeah. So to kind of be, yeah, involved in in that journey has been really cool. And I feel like because Alethea and I work so close across many things that I do feel like I'm able to receive what she's putting down when she's talking about 80s and arcade games and <laughs> <laughs> travel. But um, the process for the soundtrack itself has been really awesome, especially working with Jindu Pedro Laurie, who's like probably like the, the lead musical composer. So there's a degree of like mentorship that I'm receiving from getting to be around him. Obviously, I'm contributing songwriting and um, we're recording in the studio space at my house in Talabudra. But Jindu really is just, he he can do the 80s, can't he? Oh, <laughs> Well, you've, the conversation you had the other night when he was trying to teach you yeah, how to um, do the guitar solo. Yeah, there's a particular <laughs> guitar solo that I may or may not have to do live, <laughs> which I don't know if we can give away. But then, you know, it, Jindu's level of musicianship and mine, they're, they're, you know, they're just from different worlds. And he's, I was just like, I, I think you're going to have to make me a video so I can learn that, Jindu. And he was just like, just think Slash. And I was like, <laughs> I can think Slash doesn't mean I can do it. Um, <laughs> doesn't so, mean it's going to sound like what you're background. thinking about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, no, working with Jindu has been really great. And there's so many different elements of the 80s, I think, that are integrated into the soundtrack from the different genres that have come through. You know, that kind of pop 80s, but mm. also a bit of glam and hair and yeah. uh, big rock and stuff without giving too much away. So it's And it's super, super fun because the 80s is one of the funnest realms of music and being able to tell our stories, Aletheia's stories, First Nations stories through the modality of the 80s is really mm. cool. And I think that's part of the awesome experience that uh, Aletheia is providing for Mob because Queen City is insanely fun. Mm. And every aspect of it has been really fun. So we know that Mob are going to find it fun. Yeah. I think we've just said to musicians, you don't have to write your stuff, go write 80s stuff. And they're living out their geek (laughs) 80s glam rock, you know, synth dreams. Mm, That's what it feels like every time I get a demo. I'm like, whoa, (laughs) you've really listened to some glam rock lately, which is lots and lots of fun. Yeah. How great. Would you say that it's part kind of gig part theatre work. I know one, one of the things that is so exciting, mm. and I know you've spoken a lot about this in your practice, Alethea, is that, that the nature of the work that you make and that mob make and that black social seeks to create in this city in particular often shuns a lot of the, the more traditional theatre-making tropes that we're used to seeing. And I imagine with that comes incredible freedoms mm. where you go, yeah, it's part roller skating show, part 80s extravaganza, political commentary. Are there any rules in in making this sort of work? No, the only rules are what you can try and achieve within the realm of theatre. So there 
sometimes you, I will get caught up in going, oh, did that make sense with that? And then I was like, oh, well, it doesn't need to because the story's there and the message is there and I'm like playing with what I show the audience and what I don't show the audience because there's things that I want just for mob and they'll just get it instinctively and I want the non-Indigenous folks to have to work for that moment a little bit more. So we've been able to really have so much fun with it and you know the music comes through in multiple ways there's like a touch of gig kind of element but then it also becomes like karaoke so you're going through all the genres of the 80s and in in a way and that karaoke is actually like the narration and the storytelling behind it and that becomes like a really important yeah the music is the value that I think music has always been on these lands and that it tells the story and you've got to pay attention to that music to understand the story, which is just makes it fun, but it's also kind of has a really deep, important memory and moment for us in reclaiming this space mm. and having to imagine what Indigenous 80s music sounded like is great because there's so many great bands that we've been able to reference. There's some cool tracks by the Warumpu brand, No Fixed Address, but also them being able to go, well, we weren't given space, what would we insert? back in here if we had the space that we have now for example so being able to insert those genres in Mm. and I suppose it's a big work like Queen City is the first of three works attached to this world that we know of already so there's lots of things we're not telling people because you've got to come see the sequels yeah you must (laughs) you touch on there the the kind of you know 60,000 years of music making and the origins of of music. And I I read a great article that you featured in, Lockie, where you talked about the the biggest artists of of contemporary music or of our time being bands like the Beatles, for example. And then you're going, looking at, well, sure, that's 60 years of music making, but but when you take it 60,000 years of music making, Mm. what does that mean and who are... Who should we be looking to for that that kind of musical history? Mm. I think that that's fascinating. And as you say, to look at an 80s soundtrack through the eyes of different storytellers is a pretty incredible opportunity. It certainly feels that way. And I think that act of reclamation has been really important for Lockie and Jindu. So mm. I know like you've co-written a couple of the songs mm-hmm. on the album and that process has been, I think, aren't you working on the last song, which is like, what, what's Black What's Black Bruce Springsteen? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we found, and the thing is, we went looking Bruce for some reference tracks yeah. of Blackfellas and mm. we found them. Mm. And we're like, this is the great, like we found a couple of songs. Yeah. Like, was it Pretty Bird Trick? Yeah, yeah, that's And it was just, song. why is this not bigger? Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, that's been a huge part of the process. And that's what it is, yeah taking those kind of song formats, like Lethe just said, like kind of doing a Bruce Springsteen one. And it's like, oh, okay, let's see if we can indigenize this. And then, yeah, as Lethe said, we're just uncovering that it's already been done as well and how much this process is also a process of reclaiming, but also discovering what was there and just not given the air, which I think is um, a, an important part of the learning. But it definitely is also a real really fun adventure to explore different music styles with the depth of the narrative that's coming from Queen City mm. as well so i think um at the heart of this new work is is that powerful provocation which is whose stories are deemed more important mm. and as you say Lockie, in your musical exploration you know looking at who is a black 
Bruce Springsteen and then finding it, mm. but realizing that we don't know about them because mm. they've not had the same space mm-hmm. that, mm. that others have had. Was that the core question at the heart of this work? Whose stories are deemed most important? I think so, because that's the core question of every role that I have in the art sector. So outside of writing and directing plays, I work in the music industry myself on the other side. I'm not a musician and I deliberately chose to produce and program in an art form that wasn't mine because I was of the mindset that I can say a little bit more in the music industry and I don't have to have any concerns about whether I'm going to get programmed at a music festival because you don't want to see that. So it was all good. And so I think when I looked at this, what's happening within the theatre sector and what was happening in the music industry and the various other places that I've worked, it came down to just some stories were deemed more important than others, certainly coming from an institution like a museum. Like you're given your little section of a exhibition and off you go where you're given... You know, the, one of the museums I worked at didn't have an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander section at that point in time. And so it would kind of, we were like, what happens if you mess with that story? And if you were able to play an arcade game and change your reality mm. and change the time frame that you were in? And we live in cyclical time, so every story that we tell is shifting that reality. And on top of that, like, that's all very serious. We also just wanted to have fun because we are in these other spaces, like, you know, having to advocate every day just to be on on a stage or be on a playlist that it's just nice to be able to set an environment where we can have as much fun as possible Mm -hmm. as the healing and the antidote to that other work that we do where we're of service to other mob and trying to get their stories heard. Mm. So we really wanted to create a space where we could just come in, have fun and have, it's like there's this force field around us when we're in a room together where, yeah, we might be in whatever institution we're rehearsing in, but it's just us. And for that period of time, Queen City comes to life in all of us and the world that we try to envision in this play the world that we think is possible, the world that we want to live in comes to life in the process of rehearsing and making it. You touched there very briefly on healing, the concept of healing, and I recall that for your recent work, Cooked, with Digi Youth Arts and The Good Room, uh, you noted that the rehearsal room has become a pivotal place of healing, teaching and strategizing. In what way for both of you would you say that art making or theatre making facilitates that process of healing? Yeah, I do think it enables uh, a degree of freedom to explore ideas that might only be at the back of the head. But also everything about Queen City is creating music for Mob, there's a sense that the, you know, the play is all for Mob and it's all for us, as Alethea had just said. So participating in that is, is just really healing. I think for me it was about, I remember when I had to get 
because I've spent a while on this work and I haven't been given the resources before to spend so much time on a work. And so when I got to trying to figure out how it ended, or should I say paused, because it is attached to a much broader thing, I wrote down all the really pivotal institutional harm moments that have happened over the past couple of years. And there's been quite a few significant things. And my story is one of many. And my story is easier because I don't have to combat colorism as well. And so I wrote all of that down and I was like, I'm going to deal with it. And then kind of on top of that, wrote all the things I'm doing to combat that and to kind of cover it up, not cover it up, but overpower it because I have. And I did get through that. And, you know, some of that coincidentally enough, or not really because the play came from my life, Mm. but is there was the, you know, the experience I had at a particular museum and how challenging that was. And then an experience I had at a particular music industry festival. And so those experiences, then I, I was enabled to kind of flip that around and actually do something with it, which was really lovely and go, right, well, I can imagine a world if I want to, and I do every day really, where the music industry does not exist. And if I can't get them on board with abolishing the music industry in my other job, then I'll just abolish it in a play if I want to. Like, you know, and that's kind of where the fun kind of happens is like we can just imagine whatever world we want to in stories. We always have and we always will. And so with Queen City, it was just about imagining the world that we wanted to live in, but also leaving space for every individual black fella to also imagine that world because it's not up to us to say what that world is either. And then, you know, we've created this beautiful tapestry where we get to have so much fun with that. Like we followed Queen City up a month later with a work called Black Friday, which is an Mm. Indigenous fright night that's set in the same world and the same time. And we're going to have a lot of fun with that. I think we've decided the first death in the uh, mm. right now it's like a reconciliation action plan aliening <laughs> out of an Someone indigenous person <laughs> being like oh the tokenism is killing me <laughs> <laughs> so just yeah actually going let's have fun mm. with how we're going to imagine this future because it will come true you you mentioned earlier the role that uh, Arnie Colleen and Uncle Charles play as cultural dramaturgs on this work and I'm interested in hearing you speak about the increased platform that you have now as an artist, as a young artist in 2022, but with those elders being involved in the process and being consultants and, and guides on, on the making of this work, what is that like for them to see this type of work being made, being made for the main stage, being made for the State Performing Arts Centre? What are their feelings on that? Yeah, I can't speak for them, but I can speak for a moment we recently had Hayloki with Mm -hmm. Cooked. Mm -hmm. Like they both came and even saw Cooked and they were just so overcome with many emotions that finally we had a space like that with Young Mob telling a story and, you know, Cooked had, we put rage on a stage, we put black joy on a stage. We put everything we feel at on that stage and just watching their reaction to that and being finally given that space. Mm. And I think working with Arnie Cole and Uncle Charles, they really put things into perspective, mm. don't they? Yeah. So we're essentially doing what they dreamt of. Mm. So what we dream of, we've got to make count. 
because someone will be doing what we dream of. Mm -hmm. And that sort of really helps put it into perspective. Yeah. But they teach us, Mm. like, so much. Mm. Like, they even taught us of, you know, we just assume every aspect of, say, the 1980s was worse off. But they talk about some things being better, Better like the connection that was enabled because of the way things were structured. And that was so pivotal because I think sometimes as younger Indigenous people, we can Mm. cling on to whatever we, you know, everything's getting better, this and that, but actually hearing that there's things that we could actually borrow from Mm. what they were doing back then and bring it into now has been really interesting. Hey. Yeah, no, totally. The way um, both Uncle Charles and Aunty Cole talked about the 80s, I remember finding, you know, surprisingly awesome, like being like, all right, so what were the things that were, you know, that were not so good that we can integrate? And like, Uncle Charles was like, the 80s were great. Mob, you could walk down the street, talk to Mob, be like, where do I go to talk about this? And it was just all so much more connected. He was saying, whereas now there's kind of a lot more. It's all the way the government structured yeah. things is a bit more divided up. Yeah. So, because we're probably doing so well. But yeah, yeah I think <laughs> yeah. it was, yeah, just hearing those real stories, I think, yeah. from them was incredible. And then how, yeah, definitely how moved they both were after Cooked, that just the young people got to be on that stage and to yeah. talk about the things that were being talked about on that stage safely, mm. you know, mm. is not something that they got to see in their time. Yeah, I'm really interested to see how they will react after the dress rehearsal in QPAC when we do the first dress rehearsal and they see the whole thing come to life Mm. and they see a resourced black independent theatre production Mm. with an independent theatre, like, you know, black company, yes, attached to these other institutions. And I hope that that we show just how grateful we are for everything they fought for because that's why we're here. Yeah. I think there's something particularly powerful about a work such as this, making its premiere at Queensland Performing Arts Centre. As you say, in the fictitious world of Queen City, you have Restriction Road and -hmm. you have, you know, always on one side and, and everything else on the other. I think, you know, our state performing arts centre as a, as an institution is another site that is steeped so deeply in complex post-contact history. How does that influence or infuse the work? And and is it is it significant that this piece receives its world premiere at an institution such as QBAC? It does because black people also paved that way. So it was Nadine McDonald-Dowd when she was working there that got the first ever creative development funding for this work and now that First Nations program exists and, you know, is carried on from previous work. So it feels, I do love being inside those institutions whilst tearing them down. I don't necessarily think that's going to be the the abolition we're necessarily calling for, but right now while there isn't a black, theatre space I can go to to show my work. I kind of like sneaking in there and burning it down a little. And I think particularly this work where it does have so many references to culture and Mm. what constitutes culture. Like I'm pretty sure there's a direct dig at QPAC in Mm -hmm. the script before (laughs) I even knew because it Mm -hmm. was like, you know, they're going to tear always down for a museum but then they – something happens and they're tearing it down for a performing arts centre. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it's a direct contact, direct contact mm-hmm. in, in terms of a hits made. So 
and having spent so much time in and around this sort of so-called cultural precinct as a black fella and knowing all the other mob that have actually engaged with those really colonial institutions, there's something that can be unsettling for them for us to come in there and have that space. And it's just, yeah, really interesting that Cooked and Queen City have been in there or are going mm. to be in that space this year, given what they're both kind of about in very different ways. But, you know, one's kind of cook kind of blows up the colony and then Queen City reimagines it back together. There's been a lot of talk lately about the road to 2032 and you know, the stories that the city wants to tell. There's been a lot of discussion around a new cultural centre, um, what that looks like. Do you have any ideas? I'm sure you do. What are your ideas for what we should be prioritising over the next 10 years in the lead up to all eyes being on Brisbane? I think it makes me think about, and look, you and I were just talking about this, what Dreaming Now posted Mm. and flipping that narrative of the process being how do we include First Nations people? No, no, we should be deciding how to include them. Mm. And, you know, we're visitors to various places. So Mm. the mob who are the custodians of that place Mm -hmm. deciding on what that is. So I think there's an opportunity you know, the world I would want to imagine and be mm. part of and, and dream into existence is one that actually flipped that around and is like, actually, how do we include non-Indigenous processes versus the other way around? Yeah. <laughs> how do, instead of embedding some 20, you know, 5% Indigenous program in, say, like a classroom, what happens if you actually find, well, how do we fit in the last 250 years of history? Cause it's not much, yeah. you know, <laughs> like flipping that, yeah. na- like flipping that process a little. And mob would probably be way more inclusive anyway. <laughs> we, we are. We, we really are. So that's, you know, particularly we could, we'd be much more inclusive of folks who are finding their way to the, these, this continent for whatever reason that mm. they've had to find their way here. So I think, yeah, it would be nice to do something that would be deemed as radical, which is actual Mm. change anyway. It's just deemed as radical. But it would be nice if there was actual change Mm. connected to that and there was not consultation but decision-making handed Mm. over to mob. Mm. Totally. Brisbane Festival Artistic Director Louise Bazina speaks a lot about looking back as a way to move us forward. And there are a number of works within this year's Brisbane Festival that very much do that, of which uh, Queen City is certainly one. What role do you think the arts can play in achieving greater social cohesion more generally? Queen City is the work that I examined for my doctorate, so I can pull this quote out. Um, But Annie Leonie Coghill, who I worked with, once told me our artists were our history keepers, our storytellers, and our future makers. They always have been and they always will be. And I think the role that the arts play from, say, a black fella perspective is interconnected to every other facet of society. And so if we are going to envision and then enact a future where we've looked after country and we've looked after one another, then it is Indigenous stories that are at the forefront of that change connected 
to all of the other things MOB are doing across every other sector in this continent. Well, as for the question around whose stories are deemed more important, I think it is certainly yours. And I'm very, very (laughs) grateful for this chat, for the wisdom, for the sharing. I'm incredibly excited to see Queen City world premiere at this year's Brisbane Festival. Thank you so much for being part of this. Thank you so much for having us and shout out to Brisbane Festival for supporting Black Independent Theatre. Thank you so much. Brisbane Festival returns to fill the city with three weeks of wonder, delight, black joy and celebration from the 2nd to the 24th of September. For information and tickets, visit brisbanefestival.com.au.